Good morning, listeners. Today is Friday, June 24th, 2022, and the time is now 10.34 a.m., and we have the pleasure of having Dan Chodorkoff, a professor and an author, with us today. Hello, Dan. Hi, how are you, Steve? Thanks for having me on. Oh, no problem. No problem at all. Um, uh, a, a gentleman had reached out to me and asked me if I would uh, about interview you, and I was flattered. And after, especially after looking you up and all your credentials. Well, thanks. Now you um you are the co-founder for the Institute for Social Ecology ISE. Yes, I am. Back in nineteen seventy-four. Social theorist named Murray Bookchin and I started the institute, and we're coming up on our 50th anniversary in not too long a time. Now, is, is that now is that uh, affiliated with Goddard College, or is that a separate institution? It's a, it's an independent institute. We were a part of Goddard when we began, but we became independent in 1980 or 79. Yeah. affiliations with some other colleges and universities so that we have some programs that students can earn college credits through or actually earn a master's degree by working with us. And you um and, and you were educated at the new school for social research? That's where I got my PhD um, many years ago. I, I believe that's in Manhattan if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, I'd known a few folks who uh, had um, gone there, uh, and you uh, you recently re- released had a book published in in February called Sugaring Down. Yes, that's my second novel. I sort of turned away from writing more academic stuff and wanted to use the novel form to tell stories that still deal with a lot of the same issues and a lot of the same content that I looked at as an academic, but I wanted to try to present the ideas in a more accessible form in a way that people could uh, take something away from and, and enjoy the read also, telling stories, which is really an extension of what uh, anthropologists do, you know, at least ethnographers, where we tell stories about other cultures and other people and other kinds of experiences. Yeah, a, a reviewer wrote that it, it reads like a memoir. It, it takes care to describe the political movements and thinking of the late 1960s. Yeah. Well, it's not It's not a memoir. It's a novel. So, of course, like many novelists, I do draw on personal experiences and and some of the scenes that take place in the book are really quite literal representations of experiences that I had, and others are complete fabrications. Uh, But in the service of telling a good story, I wanted to draw on as wide a range of approaches as I could. Yeah, it it definitely looks like a a good read, and um, you also, um, correct me if I miss pronounce it you had a previous novel called L- Luisada 
based in New York's Lower East Side. Lower East Side is, of course, the Hispanicization of the Lower East Side. And that one, too, is uh, deals with political themes. It's about a young anarchist squatting in an abandoned building on the Lower East Side and her struggles to save community gardens, alliances she makes with Puerto Rican community groups, and, and the relationship that she has with her great-grandmother, who's also an anarchist who lives on the Lower East Side, but she was active around uh, the turn of the century. So. It's interesting that the, the era you're talking about, that's, um, I was just a baby then. I, I, I was born in 1966 at Beth Israel Hospital. <laughs> yeah. All these things were going around. I was just a little baby in a stroller. I had no idea what was going on. I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the Lowy Side takes place actually in 1984 uh, when gentrification was really beginning to sweep through that neighborhood, which had previously really been a, a ghetto, mostly Hispanic, Puerto Rican, and Dominican. And suddenly it became attractive to the real estate developers. Rudy Giuliani was the mayor. He, rather than allowing people to take over the abandoned buildings and turn them into decent housing, he started auctioning them off. He made a concerted effort to close down the many community gardens that had begun during that period. And very famously said, uh, the era of socialism on the Lower East Side is over. <laughs> so it's... It's an attempt to look at those dynamics, what happens when a neighborhood begins to gentrify and how people oppose it. Then, then you must be. Represent the, go ahead. You must be talking about the 90s because uh, Giuliani was elected in 1993. Yeah, but the gentrification started in the 40s. I mean, in the uh, 80s, sorry. That, yeah, that was the Koch era. And the city was much more amenable then to people. People went into these buildings, at least in the Puerto Rican community, people went into the buildings initially as squatters. And then they were able to gain legal title to the buildings and through a process they called sweat equity urban homesteading. They used their own labor to renovate the buildings and created low-income uh, housing cooperatives. So it was an exciting time, and, and Giuliani really put an end to that. Yeah, a, a lot of what he did wasn't good. The only good thing he did was clean up crime in the city. Yeah, I guess he did that. But besides that... So, uh, you know, some of the measures that he used were really, uh, were really taking away people's civil liberties, so... It's debatable how successful in the long run that approach was. Yeah, that, that's a fine pendulum because we go from one extreme to the other, but that, that's a whole other conversation in itself. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a, a rise in crime now, but it's not getting anywhere near what the city was back in the 70s and the 80s, uh, relatively minor compared to crime rates back then. Oh, yeah, it was a terrible place, Dad. Remember, uh, remember all the graffiti on the trains? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the city was, was having a tough time. It, it certainly was, yeah. 
And um, what else uh, can I ask you? Are you um, are, are you still teaching today? No, I've been retired for a number of years. Uh, though I still work with the institute, I do an occasional lecture, and all of that. But uh, basically, I'm just sitting home and trying to get some writing done and gardening and enjoying my family, trying to make the best of things in a world that uh, seems to have gone pretty crazy. It really has. It's disgusting what they're doing now with the, the rental increase, uh, you know, 29, 30% increases in rent. It's horrible. Yeah, it's insane. You have to wonder how anyone can afford to live in Manhattan or Brooklyn at that for that matter anymore. They've gentrified Brooklyn pretty thoroughly too. So it's tough. And, you know, you put that together with COVID and the political situation, the decisions the court's making and uh, the economic crisis. And behind that, of course, uh, global warming. <laughs> things are worse than I've ever seen them before in my lifetime, I've got to say. And I thought things got pretty bad uh, in the 60s with the repression and the war and all of that. So it's, it's uh, quite a period we're living through. It really is, especially with the emergence of the new nationalism and, and the right extreme wing. Yeah, it's terrifying. It really is. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I worry. I worry. I'm sure you worry too. You're worried for your children and your grandchildren. Absolutely. Very concerned. And, you know, you do what you can do as an individual, but it's really going to require, I think, a majoritarian social movement You're you're here for a purpose, you know, and it sounds like you're very very passionate about about your 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 thoughts. If you were going to put a gun to your head, yeah. Well, <laughs> as I said, uh, you know, it's important, I think, to maintain a sense of hope, a sense that things can get better, even a vision for what the better society would look like, which has been an important theme and. and I really uh, specialized in looking at community development and utopian studies and social ecology retains a utopian outlook of belief in that we can create a, a better place, a good place. There's not the kind of utopianism that ends in a cloud cuckoo land that's unachievable and unrealistic, but a utopia that's based in real existing possibilities and there are plenty of them out there. There's a lot of exciting work going on in a variety of arenas. People are developing new forms of political organization. There are solidarity economies starting to emerge in places around the world. There's, I think, a, a, a real consciousness among young people today of, around social equity. And there are some hopeful signs. There's some technological developments that hold out hope for us as well. But it really requires uh, the development of a social will and, and I think some kind of a vehicle for political action 
to actualize those possibilities. And, uh, Murray Bookchin, who I co-founded the Institute with, put it very well. I think he said, he quoted a graffiti that appeared during the May-June events in Paris in 68, the student uprising at Nanterre University, where they said, uh, be realistic, do the impossible, to which Bookchin added, if we don't do the impossible, we face the unthinkable. So I, I try to keep that kind of consciousness in mind when I look at what's going on today. Someone told, I heard actually yesterday, someone saying that you, you can't change the whole world, but if you can just like influence the people in your radius, maybe in your five miles that you know every day, that that can make a difference. And hopefully that will permeate into outer layers. Yeah, I think that's very true. I'm, I'm a believer in uh, thinking globally and acting locally. And at the same time, I think we also have to act globally. Uh, you know, something that an individual really can't achieve, but through political action, we can begin to transform the policies and the approaches that society takes. And we've got to do it because if we don't, we're heading down an extremely destructive path. We're, we're well down that path already, but it's not too late. There is still possibility of turning things around, but we've, we've got to act. It's a problem. A lot of people just have, they're very self-absorbed. They're greedy. Um, like the Beatles song, I, Me, Mine. Yeah, very true. It's funny. I, I, uh, what, what was Trump? Trump? Go ahead. Oh, Imagine is a great song. And how about uh, What's Going On, Marvin Gaye? Absolutely. It's funny. Uh, Trump, a lot of good artists right at that time. Uh, or or um, Jefferson Airplane, We Can Be Together. Sure. It's a, it was a beautiful time. It, it was a magical time. Uh, but I, I, I get the feeling that... Like a lot of the hippies of the time, they kind of sold out and became yuppies in the eighties. I think I think a good number of people did. I think that the uh, the boomer generation, you know, initiated a lot of really important changes. But uh, people got tired, and people got co-opted, and people chose the easier route of sort of joining the mainstream, going along, and getting along. But I think the spirit that was ignited in the 60s did bring about some real changes. And what frightens me about today is that we seem to be witnessing an attempt to roll back those changes and with some success. I mean, look at uh, what the Supreme Court has been doing and look at what's happening in Texas where they want to actually uh, repeal the, the voting rights amendment, the voting rights laws. and. It's a terrifying thing to see that kind of reactionary outlook uh, gaining ground. But we've got to struggle against it. We've got to fight back. And I think that requires protest and it requires creating alternative kinds of institutions. And very importantly, it requires political action as well. And these are all sorts of themes that I try to address in Sugaring Down, which is a novel about Vermont in the 60s, uh, the com 
communal experiments here were wide-ranging. There were over 100 communes in Vermont, which is a tiny little state back in the 60s. And they had a lasting impact on the state of Vermont's reputation today, of course, as is probably the most liberal state in the country. We have the only uh, socialist senator in Congress, Bernie Sanders. Uh, but when I first moved here, Vermont was still largely a Republican state. And in the early 60s, it was rock-rip Republican. So uh, I think that the counterculture, the back to the land movement of the 60s had a tremendous impact here. And that's something that I try to explore in the book as well, as well as the contradictions and the problematic aspects of that movement. Ultimately, the sort of destruction of the anti-war movement and the broader movement for social change that grew out of, uh, I think, as you mentioned, you know, people sort of giving up and going along with the system. And also, I think there was a degree of self-destructiveness there, which is something else that's explored in the book, the turn towards violence by groups like the Weathermen, particularly, play a role in this novel. And it's a, it's a, a fascinating dynamic for me. It's writing the book really required me to sort of go back through my own experiences and the history of that era and try to evaluate it and make sense of it and understand both its possibilities and its limitations. Do you, do you remember where you were uh, in 1971 when the, the Kent State killings took place? I do. Uh, I was actually living in a cabin in the woods in Vermont at that point. Vermont sounds like a like a nice place, but it, it's probably freezing in the winter. Yeah, it's it's a tough environment. And it's uh, actually the environment of Vermont and the weather and the climate, the geography are all sort of characters in the book because it shapes all those physical factors, shape reality in a way that they really... Uh, don't in the city, you know, you really experience weather and it has a big impact on your life. So I, I wanted to try to capture some of that experience in the book as well. It's quite different from what most urban and suburban dwellers experience. And it is a beautiful place. And even at its harshest, there's a beauty. It's, uh, it's pretty... I, well, I fell in love with it when I first moved here, and I think that one of the main characters in the novel, David, goes through this similar kind of catharsis, experiencing nature in a different way, and coming to love it and appreciate it. So that's part of the story. It sounds it sounds like a certain a purity to the environment as opposed to your suburban or urban environments. Well, it's certainly... Uh, more untrammeled, but I wouldn't say it's pure. You know, Vermont has been, people come here and they see, you know, 80% of Vermont is forested and they assume it's all virgin forest and all that, but it's not. It was all cut down. It's a uh, hundred years ago, instead of being 80% forested, Vermont was 80% open land, farmland, but the farms have gone out of business. Various economic factors forced them out and the forests have come back. So there is uh, a, a very strong presence of 
the natural world here, but it's not pristine, really. It's all the hand of man has touched every inch of this state. And it's, we've had a tremendous impact. But Vermont also has a very strong environmental consciousness, so people have made an effort to preserve the land and the forests and to do what they can to support small farms and to introduce various kinds of uh, energy technologies that respect the earth. And in, in that sense, Vermont is an extremely progressive place. It sounds like it. Um, oh, just to let you know, we're, we're on 20 minutes and 31 seconds, and we'll, we'll get timed out at 30 minutes. Fine. Just a heads up. Uh, I, do, I believe uh, uh, Ben and Jerry are up there in Vermont, too. Socially responsible business thing is very big up here. We have Ben and Jerry's, and, uh, seventh generation who manufacture, you know, toilet paper, paper towels, and cleaning products, and all of that that are ecological. Yeah, it's uh, we have something here that uh, other states, I think, some of them are beginning to adapt, which is the special category of corporation, a social benefit corporation which as part of its charter involves a social mission. Uh, so there is, I think, a very progressive consciousness here in Vermont that finds expression in policies. Uh, so I, I feel very privileged to be here, and it's a good place to be. Though, as I said, it's, it's harsh. It's, it's a tough life. It's not for everyone. You have to like a lot of snow because we have it on the ground about six months out of every year. Uh, but as I said, it's something that just captured me when I was a young person, and I've really never left. Well, at this point, you, you've lived the majority of your life there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you ever go back to New York and visit? Yeah, you, you once you know what you're right. You, you know it's hard to forget your friends in New York, even if you left. It is indeed. Yeah, I just actually I was down there last month and attended the Lowy Sida Festival, which is something they've been doing for the past fifteen years or so in the neighborhood, and it was fantastic. Just you know, walking down two blocks, I probably saw twenty old friends. And it was quite wonderful. Oh, that's nice. It's nice to see, uh, you know, old friends and old time and know they're still around and still kicking it. Absolutely. Do you, uh, do you remember a place called the Sunshine Hotel on the Bowery? I have heard of it. I don't have a strong memory of it. Okay, it's a flop house. They, they, I don't know how much they charge now, but back in the day, they charged $10 a night. I don't like that word boutique. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I I, li I lived uh, most of my life on Long Island, and there's a there's a lot of class discrimination there. How bad? Uh, yeah, yeah, there's like like um, renters versus homeowners because the majority of people are homeowners there. So if you're a renter, you don't have any rights. 
or if you don't have a car, you're not um, equal. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, in, in a lot of suburban settings, if you don't have a car, you're dead in the water. That's certainly true up here in Vermont. That's one of the big disadvantages. We have virtually no public transportation up here. Uh, you know, we had a good rail system, but they tore up all the tracks back in the 50s. So <laughs> now we're condemned to drive everywhere. And distances between, you know, like Burlington, which is the biggest city in the state, has a population of about 40,000 people. That's an hour drive for me, if, you know, if I want to go to the big city. So there are some trade-offs living in Vermont, but I love it personally. You know, wherever you find your inner peace, well, you know, um, as the Grateful Dead say, that uh, the compass always points to Terrapin. I hear you. (laughs) Anyway, um, is there anything you'd like to say for our listeners? Uh, Anything they should be in tune for? Any websites where they could find you? good and i i will um i will share a link to this uh episode too so uh you know folks on my facebook page can get a chance to uh, become familiar with you terrific well thanks so much thank you i really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast oh thank you i really enjoyed our conversation dan all right all right take care now you too bye Bye bye-bye